Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the Apper podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the first episode of the podcast series, Hey Advocacy. This is being presented by the APRA Advocacy Committee, and this is sort of our way of helping APRA members answer practical questions by listening to other experts in our field in ways that they have advocated for themselves, their teams, and for our profession. We are really excited to have you here with us today. This is a bit of a a casual conversation where we'd like you to sit back, relax, have a favorite beverage, and pretend that you're here with us as we have this conversation, because we're hoping that you will get some words of wisdom out of it, but that you'll also feel a part of it. My name is Amy Turbis. I am a member of the APRA um, International Board and the Advocacy Committee. I am joined by three very distinguished members of the committee as well, and I'd like them to introduce themselves to you. So we'll start. Yeah. So hi, I'm Emily Walsh. I'm the Associate Vice President of Development Research and Resources at the University of Arizona Foundation. Um, Like Amy, I'm also a member of the APRA International Board of Directors, um, and I'm serving on the Advocacy Committee this year. I'm Misa Lobato. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Advancement Strategy and Annual Giving at the University of Colorado, and I am also a member of the APRA International Board and the Advocacy Committee. This is John Garrow. I'm the Assistant Director of Donor Strategy and Research at Monocure Health System and Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I've been having a great time on the Advocacy Committee. Well, thank you everybody for being here. Today in our discussion, we want to address two questions that we, everyone around the table has heard from various people over the years. Many members know and feel that prospect development is their career, but their jobs often do not allow them to do the work all of the time. So the first question is, hey, advocacy, how can I make prospect development 100% of my job? So I think the tactics you're going to take, this is Emily, by the way, I think the tactics you're going to take are going to be completely dependent upon your situation in some ways. And so a lot of it goes into how you plan your approach. Um, So when I think about this, one of the things I think about is, um, do you know if the services you're providing through the prospect development work that you are doing are helpful? and desired. Um, So I think part of your planning process is you think about maybe approaching, making a case to do this work more regularly is talking to the people you're already supporting. So talk to those development officers, talk to the fundraisers, um, ask them if what you're doing is helpful. What could you do more or better? And what do they want? Um, I think having their voice be part of your case um, is gonna be critical to having success here. Are there services they wish they had more of? From their perspective, how would this make their jobs easier? And I think as you ask those questions and build those relationships, um, you're developing influence of those people and you can then lean on them to help you make the case. I think the other thing you can really think about um, as you sort of plan your approach or plan your strategy uh, for making the case to do this is thinking about the prospect development work you've done in the past. Can you show a tie from the work you've been doing to organizational return on investment. And this is something that I've had a lot of success with at my own organization. It's kind of hard to come to terms with, but the ROI case often is the one that, um, especially those who make decisions about resources and allocating potentially your time to doing work full-time are gonna think, what is the return we get out of this? Um, 
So potentially looking at prospects you've developed or, you know, referred out to development officers in the past, um, have gifts resulted from those referrals that might not have otherwise happened had you not identified that prospect? Um, do development officers have examples of this that they can maybe share with you so you're not sort of struggling to sort this out? Um, so those are just some ideas that I've been thinking about in my own organization. How do we create more time to do this work? Um, so if you're someone who's looking to start doing this more often, those are just some suggestions from a planning perspective, but I'm looking around sort of at my colleagues here to see what their thoughts are as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think a lot of it is sort of demonstrating the ROI. And one of the things that I think is really important is that, um, you know, when we are we're sort of thinking about our work and our impact, we're really trying to make the fundraising operation more sophisticated. So like the fundraising fundamentally hasn't really changed over like the course of, of, you know, the, I don't know, decades that people have been doing <laughs> fundraising, but the course of time, um, but our work has changed really dramatically. And I think one thing um, that I sort of found in my organization was that people had a really outdated view of what prospect research or prospect development was. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so they, there was this like feeling like it doesn't have an ROI. Um, you know, we can't really, we can't really like make a case for having people doing a lot of people doing this work. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, that we did when we were really trying to transition to doing like, I think different work, more innovative work, um, was that we would get in front of um, people as they came into the organization. So we had an we have an orientation, and as soon as people come in, they have to do our orientation, and then we would like immediately grab them and say like, if you need any help organizing your portfolio or figuring out who to contact, you know, let us know. And um, and people loved it because they're um, especially people kind of new to the organization are trying to get as much help as they can, and. Um, and I sort of liken this to the 4-H model, which is the, the organization 4-H was established because, because um, farming practices were handed down through generations. And usually, like, people were not really, people weren't adding in, like, innovations or best practices in farming. They were just kind of, like, taking what their parents did and then replicating that. And, um, and then they found, so they found when they were trying to educate like adult farmers, that adult farmers were not, were really not receptive to, um, to like technologies or innovations. Um, but they started educating um, young people, so youth um, who would go into farming and, and then they would become like more innovative farmers. And, and then often that would actually like trickle up to their parents as well. Um, so what we always say is like, we're, we're running like a 4-H model. We work with new farmers. Like we don't work with old farmers. Um, and I love that I'm from Nebraska and I didn't even know that. So. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, it's been effective. I think if you don't focus your time on like the old farmers, um, because they often like have an outdated view of like what research should be. And those were the people that we found that were like always asking for, the most comprehensive profiles that they didn't actually really need. And, and if we wanted to do like, if we wanted to do work that had more impact, we needed to work with people who were, who were more willing to try different things. And that was one of the ways in which we kind of built um, among the fundraisers, like a built 
a bunch of people who would be advocating for us. And they did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of us getting additional resources. It just, um, and unfortunately, that is the case in my organization. I hope it's not the case in everybody's organization that when the fundraisers are complaining about needing something, um, leadership is often more receptive. So if the fundraisers are, are complaining that they need more people in prospect development or they need somebody to do prospect development 100% of the time, um, that can be more effective than just making the case for yourself. Although I, I think that you've made the case for yourself, right, John? I had the help definitely from front, frontline folks. Um, so things I would suggest you think about, particularly if you're starting in a very small organization like I did, um, this job might not be the one that's 100% prospect development. Um, that was the case for me where it grew as part of my job and it became my favorite part of my job. Um, but it wasn't until my second fundraising job that it was spending all of my time in prospect development. Um, but things that I did to develop that were just demonstrating value of what can I do for you. So looking at that organization, it was event driven. We had lots of events going on at any one time. So helping to segment prospects for those events, helping to, you know, for the first time, give a top 10 list for the CEO of who they should be talking to, um, you know, stuff they didn't know they needed. Um, you know, working on an RFM score for annual funds, that is free 99, you can do that. It, and it takes like an hour, it's easy. Um, so I also worked on uh, the first data overlay we ever did. Um, that was not free, but it was cheap. Um, so we're able to really do a, a really good uh, plan giving campaign with that organization. And then suddenly we've got prospects track and we've got, you know, a portfolio. So that's how I got into the field was these successful projects turned into kind of a bigger way of doing fundraising that prepared me for my next role. So your fund projects turned into everyday work, turned into the actual work. Yeah, and people liked it and they wanted more of it. Yeah. So <laughs> As they it's should. easy to make the case that I need more help in this area of whatever else I'm doing. Well, and I think what I really like about what you said is that you thought about what your organization needed and provided it. So it wasn't just like, well, I think you should have this. You said, I see that you need this, especially when thinking about events, mm -hmm. and then sort of like slotted yourself into that. So you met existing needs rather than trying to sort of create new needs or think that there were needs that should be there that no one was asking for. And I think that's a loop we often find ourselves getting into right. is we're like, but it should be this way. You should be asking me for these <laughs> things. So I'm, I just want to like push that. Um, but I think you have to work your way into that and the way into that is through the things people are already deeming important to them. Right. Yeah. And I would also think about what, how you're going to communicate the value of what you're doing. You know, some people are going to want, you know, just the facts, show me data. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think they're like that way, but maybe they're not. Um, right. they're really like, right. Maybe fundraisers more, they like stories. Yes, like, always. about time when I give you this name and you called them and they were so happy to hear from you and you raised this money. So think about who, who you're making this case to mm -hmm. and how they need to hear that. I always use the story. I always have like four or five key success stories. And I know it's not always about the the story but it helps you're right for the audience it say. makes it real it does i'm like you yeah. know someone's was on our board because we did that <laughs> well screening 10 years ago you're welcome <laughs> one thing i've noticed in sort of our work 
is how we talk about ourselves. And I sort of am of the belief that if you constantly tell people, this is your job, I am a prospect development professional, this is what I do, this is how I do it, at some point they're going to say, oh, gosh, but that's your job. Why aren't you doing it 100% of the time? <laughs> sort of the projection of reality. Oh, I know. right. Like, didn't, Pam did that on The Office, right? She was, like, telling everybody <laughs> that she was the office manager. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Actually, I did something like that, too. I mean, I think you have a similar title to, to mine, I think. Um, it, it was changing the name of my department to Advancement Strategy. Right. and And so, like, deliberately moving us away from like being called just research, which was what everybody always said, even though we do research and we do relationship management, performance management, fundraising analytics. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason I did it was because I wanted them to understand like the end goal was like to develop a strategy. It wasn't like, like research, research like implies that there's somebody like, you know, in a, like in a library or I mean, and that's actually not a lot of our jobs is to actually like obtain all of the information, honestly, anymore. A lot of it is in interpreting it and like coming up with the narrative around like how we should be using information. So I think, I think even like sort of implying, and I think it's, I mean, it was a little like ballsy of me to do this, but like to imply that like we're the ones setting strategy for advancement. Um, and people bought into it. It just, you know, you just kind of have to keep saying like, oh, it's advancement strategy. Yeah, that's the department is advancement strategy. Actually, like for the first um, several months, we had to like, we had to say advancement strategy, like formerly research and process. <laughs> <laughs> the department like, formerly known like as. Prince, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's something interesting in names and words, and where your organization is at, right? So I intentionally, you guys are talking about strategy, I chose resources as a part of my department's name because I work in an organization where people were very siloed and like kind of content in many ways to just do their own thing. And so it was highlighting like, we're a resource. And if you use us as a resource, we can make you better. (laughs) Um, So it was constantly plowing that thought of like, this department is a resource for everyone. Does Um, it make people like curious of what resources you have? It does. And so it opens up dialogue. Like, well, what do you do? What can you do for me? And we have actually developed what we call a menu of services now. And it's an actual document. It's like a little menu that says, like, here are all the different things we can do. And, you know, we're a big institution. So we have like 35 colleges and units. So each one sort of has a custom kind of way of thinking about that menu. And we're starting to roll that out now as we actually have more employees to do it. But it is. It's a resource, and everyone kind of starts to tap into that. Yeah, controlling th- the narrative, I think, is mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Absolutely, I think that's. I think even for like what John was saying when he was in a small shop, it's it's necessary for someone to know who you are, what you do, why you do it immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, the orienting of new gift officers to having mm-hmm. that to, mm-hmm. to being able to say, oh, you're new. You know, so many of us work with people who've never been in fundraising, mm-hmm. and for them to not you're maybe the introduction to this strategy and to this resource. And that's great because then after they leave your institution and they probably will at some point, they've been spoiled <laughs> in a good way. The farmer turnover is rough. The farmer yeah. turnover <laughs> I love the analogy. It's never going away. <laughs> I know. I'm going to totally let that one slip when I go back to work. They're the going to call him a farmer. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally am. <laughs> we got a farmer meeting. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Um, okay. So sort of the second part of our show, we wanted to talk about another question that we've often heard a lot. And as I always like to say, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this question, I'd be one of your prospects. Um, the question is, is how can I be proactive in a reactive workplace? And as I like to think in a reactive world, because that is what we are living in. So um, I'm going to leave it to the experts around the table to help address that. One example of this that can be challenging for us in our profession is when we um, are constantly dealing with last minute, very urgent requests from people <laughs> we cannot say no to. John doesn't know anything about that. <laughs> like None minutes. of us know anything <laughs> about that. What, what are go, you talking about, I have about, to go John? pretty soon to deal with something. <laughs> um, so, but I think that is one very serious obstacle to being proactive. If our proactive projects are constantly interrupted by, hey, we need this tomorrow, cancel all your plans for this morning, this is very important. Um, and those things are important. Um, but there are things we can do to advocate for ourselves and for our teams to uh, mitigate that to some extent. Um, you know, when someone's title begins with C, we're not going to be able to do a lot. Um, but, you know, for me, it's things I'm working on and learning about are how to negotiate these kind of kinds of requests. Um, you know, what's needed exactly? Why do you need it? Um, here's what I suggest that we can do well in that amount of time. Right. Um, and thinking to, in your own mind about what are the opportunity costs, what's being lost here, and being able to, maybe not when you're negotiating this, but down the road, um, letting people know what kinds of things you are trying to do so that they're aware. If I'm taking your entire Monday morning to work on this, what is not getting done? Um, and even more broadly, like being able to tell the story of your team, like what it, what it is that you do, um, what is your vision for your highest function? John, you called it a culture of tomorrow. Is that something that you're actually verbalizing in your space, or is that just something that you're, you and your team are talking about? Um, that's a conversation I need to begin having, because um, I'm not sure people are all that aware of the way we're working and maybe that it's not optimal or totally normal. We, we actually, we like dealt, we had to deal with that. And so um, when I started in my organization, um, there were, there were two people doing research and, um, and that's for a large university. Um, and so at the time, I think we had maybe 80 gift officers um, and, and, two and two researchers. And, um, but here was the even crazier part. Like everyone had become so accustomed to like asking for like the entire, like the, the biggest, the kitchen sink report, you know, like every single thing that they could get, they wanted every time. And, um, and I remember one time we had somebody who like went out and met with a board member and came back and had 60 names. And they were like, the board member gave me these 60 names and can I have bios on all of them? And it took us three months to get through them, like, because we were trying to manage other things. And it was, it was ridiculous. And that was the point at which I was like, we can't keep doing this. Um, and so I started reaching out to people through APRA, through the Press Hotel, and, and saying, like, you know, how, how have you been able to sort of um, create some levels around your work where you're saying, at this stage in cultivation, we will provide this type of work. And, um, and, and so finally, like we, 
we kind of brought all of that together and I presented to um, I presented to the leadership team and they kind of got it. And like some of the things that we said in there was like, this is how many managed prospects we have. And this is how long it takes us to do a single profile. So if you wanted us to profile every managed prospect, it would take us at that time, it was something like 10 years or something. We don't get into numbers. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they got it, but like then, so what I was saying in this is like, we're going to stop doing this. Like we're like starting right now, we're going to start. If you, if you haven't, if you haven't ever met with somebody, you just get a name, then what you get is just capacity indicators and contact information. That's it. Like, and then, you know, when you are meeting with somebody and then they say something where they're like, oh, you know, I own a vacation home in, in this area, we'll provide you with information about the vacation home, but we're still not going to like give you every single thing that you need, that you want, not need, sorry, want. Um, <laughs> and that you need, yeah. okay. nothing. <laughs> You're done. All they need is a phone number. <laughs> Go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> But we, we, um, we, it took actually like probably a year to get people totally accustomed to like hearing from us when they would send something in, um, like, okay, this is the, this is the amount of information we can provide to you. And we had to do a lot of negotiation because there were some people where I was like, well, I can't really like risk this politically to like say to them, we're not going to give you this. Um, but the other thing too, is that like, you know, over time, I, this for better or for worse, like people transition out of the, the organization. And then as you, as you have people coming in and you're, you know, getting ahead of it and you're framing the narrative, like this is, this is the way in which we work. And the way that we talked about it was just like, the reason why we're providing you with this specific information is it because it, it, it specifically informs your next decision. Like we're going to provide you with enough information to inform your decision. If, if you just receive a name, what you need to know at that point is like, does that person have the capacity to be a major gift owner? Because until you actually reach out to them and see if you can get a meeting, it doesn't matter if, um, if you know all of their interests or if you know a lot about their family, like none of it matters if they won't take a meeting with you. So we, we, we finally like got people to the point where we had, um, we'd sort of trained them on, this is the amount of information you need. And, and then we were able to start doing the kind of work that we really wanted to be doing. And then people got excited about that. Um, but I mean, it definitely took a while. It was, um, all of this stuff is sort of like playing the long game for sure, but mm-hmm. um, but we we got it there. Well, I think your story is really interesting because we were in a very similar situation when I started at the University of Arizona Foundation. So I came in to lead a team that was basically two researchers supporting the entire organization. It was like wild. There was like prospect management was unheard of. Like no one was doing that at all. It was like. Everyone would say it was the Wild West, and I was like, oh, for real, this is the Wild West. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, like, oh, my gosh, it's really here. Um, but we almost had, like, an opposite or, or a similar but different problem where because the team was so small, leadership had basically, in, a, in an effort to protect the people that were there who were under, like, deep stress, had put this, like, call out that said, don't ask them for anything. Like, we don't have enough, like, leave them alone. Oh, yeah. And so then the work that we were doing 
was not necessarily the most effective or right kind of work. Right. Like the stuff that did get through was like event bios ad nauseum right. or, you know, weird stuff that just wasn't really impactful. Um, so a lot of our effort over the last several years has really been around how do we start to show what the impactful work is? And I think that mm-hmm. gets to a similar point, um, Misa, you were getting at, you know, what do you need at what point in the development cycle um, from, you know, a researcher or prospect development professional? I think the other thing we did was we showed that through this sort of like pushback onto our fundraising team, we have a ton of development officers who doing research. are doing yeah. DIYing like mm-hmm. everything yep. and they are not doing it effectively, efficiently, and they're not thus spending time on task to actually raise money. Yep. Um, so I partnered with some of our um, development leaders and they sort of went out and kind of surveyed their direct reports, their fundraisers and said, so tell me a bit more about how you spend your time. And so we did this like huge study that uncovered that our development officers are spending like, I don't even want, I'm not even going to say how little time on fundraising, but right. a very small amount of time. That's on actually fundraising. one of the things that like people recommend a lot is instead of, um, again, like I hate to, I hate to sort of make it seem like I'm ever saying that I think that fundraisers, like what they, what they are doing or what they want is sort of like the most important thing. But like, that's one of the things that people say all the time is like, if you can measure the opportunity cost lost by not Mm -hmm. having your fundraisers like out in the, out, you know, actually doing fundraising when they're sitting around like Googling people and like, you know, coming to bad conclusions. (laughs) Right. um, Yeah. Right, or exactly. Just not very efficient doing it. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> what takes them five hours to find? We're like, we could have looked that up for you in like ten minutes. Yeah. Or yeah. when they come to you with property, and you're like, you know, we already found that two years ago. It's all here in a score. You know, it, it's just. I think mm-hmm. people. Let's be honest. We, everyone is curious and they enjoy it to a point, but it's about you know mm-hmm. the opportunity cost. Right, and that's exactly how we made the case. So when we saw that we had you know seventy five people who spend X percent of time actually doing fundraising and then X percent of time doing all these other, you know, prospect development was one of many sort of like operations services that we were like, oh, so what happens when you don't invest in operations, right. the people mm-hmm. should be out raising money or- do operations. So that's how we've kind of made the case to grow our staff and do a lot more proactive, what we're now calling like consultative services because yeah. they've just been like on their own for so long that they don't even really know like how this should work. Exactly. I mean, that was, that was something that was happening for us too. One of the things that we did was we, we were measuring, you know, portfolio capacity and portfolio yield. And we were demonstrating that when gift officers are like sort of left to develop their own portfolios, they don't know who to focus on. Mm -hmm, They're often focusing on people because they heard a name or, you know, they, I mean, they just don't, they don't always know who the right prospects are and um and if you if if you like were looking outside of their portfolio there was there were tons of prospects that had better potential um and and they just weren't being managed because because the the um gift officers were choosing their own prospects you know i think proactive prospect management is something we do really well it's obviously evolved over time where it was the time where they would just say, I want to get rid of this person or I want this person to the, well, let's sit down and look at it and you want to get rid of this person and you want this person. Why? To the, it's now time to talk about it. And this is the focus of it. Like we will say to them, this management meeting will be about this. So be prepared to 
go over that. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying we, I mean my colleague, who's amazing. She does all that. But that <laughs> has made a huge difference, huge difference in the work that they do, their efficiencies, their money that they're bringing in, mm-hmm. because they now know their portfolio. And really, she doesn't allow them, she doesn't allow them a, a lot of room to complain because she gets their, they get a lot of her time and it helps them. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think, what did I, I told a colleague the other day, I was like, we're playing chess, we're not playing checkers. <laughs> like, this oh, is, really looking like, the long game. Right. Um, what are the moves you have to make to kind of get to your end goal? Knowing your end goal might be several years out from where you'd want it to be. Yeah. And that's and painful to think about, but... It's true, like, you know, that is. story I was telling about, like, when we put the kibosh on full profiles, that was in 2012, um, and and it took, like, by, you know, by 2015, we were, like, doing what I thought was really cool work, but, you know, I mean, that's three years, like, that's, you have to really hang in there. I mean, I've been, I've been with the University of Colorado for 11 years. When we started, we had um, two people in research. And now we have 11, but like, it's taken like 10 years to get there. So, <laughs> so buckle down. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the story here. I feel like I'm just beginning that process because I'm imagining my organization is bringing on, we're doubling our number of gift officers with, and we already provide very little support to our current gift officers who are not executives. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to have to go through the process of providing no support for the new people and seeing the lack of efficiency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like you have to let it like fall apart so you can mm-hmm. rebuild it. Yeah, because I think that's like advanced advocacy that maybe I'm not ready for. I think that what's important sort of what Misa's saying is to be able to celebrate though or to be able to look back and say, oh my gosh, look mm-hmm. how far we've come. Yeah. Yay! Yeah. I too have been at Creighton for 11 years. And there are times when I think back to when I started and oh man, that was a pipe dream and that is a reality now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say that in meetings. I will I will look around the room to a couple of my colleagues and say, remember when we wished we could do that and we've already done it, particularly when people are getting cranky about the current state of affairs. I'm just like, but we've come so far. I have so, to think about that all the time because now I'm overseeing annual giving and like and going through the process again of trying to like build a department and advocate for a department that hasn't been you know, well advocated for. But, um, you know, a few years ago, maybe 2015, I sat in on a presentation at, um, at the APRA conference, Prospect Development, and it was Lisa Howley, and she was talking about, um, she was just sort of talking about how they run their performance management program. And while I was sitting in there, I was thinking like, oh, I really like a lot of these these things. And I called my boss afterward and I said, do you think that there's any chance that we could get in front of the leadership team? And I could say, you know, I can probably train all of your managers on how to set goals for their gift officers. And he was like, I don't think so. And like, we did it like starting last year. And then again, this year, we oversee the entire goal setting process. We developed the philosophy around goal setting. We like we helped people understand why you set goals in different circumstances. Um, and now we're like we've we've gone out and presented on our goal setting philosophy. So like you can get there. You just have to like really, you know, persevere through. Lots of old farmers. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny because I went to Misa's presentation at the La- in Nashville at PD, and thanks to that presentation. 
at nauseum, I'm, well, University of Colorado does this and we should do this. I'm constantly <laughs> bringing that up and really informing or whining about the, <laughs> you know, the need to have very specific metrics and goals for gift officers. And I, we, um, I have a couple meetings actually in the next couple weeks in regards to that. So people got excited because they could do the, can we do that? And I say, of course we can do that. So, oh, and you know, the thing, the, the kicker there and like the, the way that we sort of framed our goal setting thing, which I think you can also do this um, for the earlier question about just sort of like making a case for why you need to be doing prospect development all the time um, is that um, we, we focused it on retention. Like we, our goal setting is leading to like really poor retention. And that's where people are feeling it, honestly. Like it, people feel like their fundraisers are turning over all the time and there's a, you know, they're, they're losing prospects. There's like lag time. It takes so long to hire people. It's so expensive. And, um, and that's a thing that you can sort of focus on, on like, if we improve our goal setting process, if we improve the support that they're getting from resources, um, then it's going to improve their experience and they're going to have better retention. I feel like if you can tell any senior senior executive in, in our field that they can spend less time hiring fundraisers, that's going to be a good selling point. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's interesting, something I've heard from several of you that I think is an important point I've recognized kind of in myself is the importance of sort of like politically sensitive tenacity. Yes. Um, well, so you don't, you don't want to be like the annoying, like squeaky wheel that everyone's like, ugh, her again or him again, yakking about prospect development. But there is this like tenacity that has to come with it of you're just constantly putting it out there, yeah. out there. And you, like, you don't go away. But you have to do it like but with this positive sensitivity, yeah. And it's a positivity and it, like, let us help you with that mm-hmm. or seizing on opportunities that even when you're like, stretch so thin I don't know if we can do that but seeing when there's an opportunity that's going to be the thing that moves the dial and yeah. making the time for it like just um we used to do that all the time where somebody would say like I would really love if we could do x y and z and I'm like oh yeah I can do that and I would have no idea how to do it so I'd be, like, <laughs> I'd be going I'd be going back to my office and like you know googling like how do I how do I do this kind of analysis or you know like calling people in APRA and and like I had to learn mm-hmm. how to do a bunch of things because I had told people that I could do it so yeah that's the story of my career fake it fake it till you make it next time on hey advocacy (laughs) i made promises how to keep the promises you made (laughs) well this has been a lot of fun i i like how we came full circle at the end too so the Advocacy Committee wants to help you. Hey, Advocacy is waiting to hear from people. Send us an email. Let us know what kind of questions you have about advocating for yourself, your team, our profession. We want to be able to answer them. We want to get another group of fun experts around the table to provide you with some guidance. So send in, send your questions to info at aprahome.org. And just to get a little teaser, the next Hey Advocacy podcast is a special um, collaboration with the online curriculum committee um, with APRA. And the topic is going to be in regards to the recent regulations in the United Kingdom around fundraising and public domain information. We've been very privileged to have Helen Brown agree to moderate that discussion. We'll be having other um, experts around the table who are being affected by some of the decisions and regulations that have been made. 
So please watch your email for that podcast and the information around it. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.